Amen. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. All right, so we're going to kick back off into our series this week called Resurrecting. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, and we've been talking about the fact that we actually will rise again. Like, we will have these glorified bodies um, when Jesus comes for us. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul just basically telling us, making sure we believe, because there are a bunch of people around him that didn't, that Jesus really rose from the dead, and that that means we will too if we believe in him. And so you guys can open up there. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 tonight. That's where we're going to start. And while you're doing that, any, who, who, what do you think is the greatest roller coaster on earth? Any, like, opinions? Anybody ride roller coasters? Huh? Top thrill dragster? Okay. AJ, I know you're back there. What, you're the expert. What is the greatest roller coaster on earth? Millennium Force. Okay. Where would I go to ride that? Ohio. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Any other opinions? Yeah, yeah. Oh, also in Ohio. Ohio has all the, the good ones, huh? Yeah. All right. Has anyone ever ridden? Have you been to SeaWorld and ridden the Kraken? You know what I'm talking about, the Kraken? All right. So, like, I'm a roller coaster guy, but only a little bit. <laughs> like, I'm kind of a chicken. Like, I force myself to do it because I know I'll be sick to my stomach the whole time, and I kind of like that sometimes. I'm weird like that. So, but I'm not, like, a huge roller coaster person. But I, I, so I go on the Kraken, and I'm going with my older brother. And um, I'm an adult at this point, right? I'm not even, like, a kid. I'm, I'm an adult. And we're going, and I'm, like, I always looked up to my older brother. We're going on this thing, and he's like, we got to get the very front. And he's being that, like, kind of jerk in line that's, like, doing whatever he can to, like, position himself. He's counting people out and counting seats and just, like, totally nerding out with it so that we'll end up on the very front of the Kraken. And if you know anything about the Kraken, it is, like, you basically just hang there and there's, like, nothing under you and you're hanging by this harness. And so, like, he works his magic and sure enough, the whole time I'm praying, I'm like, Jesus, if you love me at all, don't let us get the front seat. I'm like praying against it. And, and he was like, no, I still love you, but you're getting the front seat. And sure enough, boom, we are in the very front row. And so we slide in there, and I'm gulping. Like, I have this big knot in my, in my throat. Like, we're, we're going to die. We're definitely going to die. I'm already freaking out. And this thing takes off, okay? And as it takes off, it's a long roller, fairly long roller coaster, and we're in the very front. And it, like, the first thing it does is just, like, drop. But because it's so long, it goes over the front a little bit, and we drop, like this, and we're literally just hanging by our chests, right, looking straight down at the ground, and the whole roller coaster is just still sitting there, basically, like, it's not moving yet. And so for about, like, it felt like an eternity, but it was probably just a couple seconds, I am just thinking of nothing else except this harness better not let go, right? Because it was the only thing keeping me from just plummeting to the ground and there being a big Rob splatter on the ground. Like, it's all I thought. I was just like, we're going to die. We're definitely dying. Hurry up. Just like roll, coaster. That's what you're supposed to do. You're a roller coaster. And it wasn't rolling. And so in that moment, I realized I had better trust the safety device on this thing. I had better trust these mechanics who are keeping all this stuff up to date, right? I had better trust this theme park. Like, there were so many things that were, like, shooting through my mind of, like, all the places it could go wrong. And I knew them all, right? Like, I was so aware that at any second, one of those things fails and I'm dead. And life is good to us. God is good to us in life sometimes to, like, bring us moments like that 
where we stop and we're just so aware of all the things that are requiring our trust. And so as Paul's talking to us in 1 Corinthians 15 tonight, there are a lot of things we need to trust about what he's saying to us. And if you don't trust it, it could lead you down somewhere you don't want to go. You see, when he's talking about your salvation, your eternal life, that's forever, there's a lot on the line. And so if you're looking at Jesus and you're saying, I believe in you, I trust in you, I want to be saved, right? Like, I want to live forever. You are taking everything and you're handing it over to Jesus going, I trust you with all of it. And so I would encourage you to know why you trust what you're trusting. And if it's not Jesus, I would look deeply into it and say, why am I putting my faith and my trust and my eternity in this thing, in this belief, in this religion, in this whatever it is? And Paul's going to tell us why we can trust Jesus 100%. And so this section of this uh, passage that we're going through tonight He's going to talk to us about reasons, more reasons why we can believe that Jesus really did what he said he did, all right? So 1 Corinthians 5, sorry, 15, 5. It says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul, over the last two weeks, has kind of given us two other evidences. First, he said, you're the proof, right? The church of God, your changed life is proof that God, that Jesus really raised from the dead because you've been transformed. And then second, he says, prophecies have come true, right? We can believe because we have all of these prophecies that were said about Jesus that actually happened. And so when you look at it, you're like, it was told hundreds or thousands of years ago, and here it is. It actually came true. That's another reason to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. And tonight, his third point to us, his third piece of evidence, while you can believe, is because there were so many eyewitnesses that attest to it. There were so many people that in this day, in this, when this passage was written, you could actually go to and say, hey, did you actually see this thing? And you could interview them and ask them your questions. And if you didn't believe them, you could kind of trick them up if you tried to, right? And, like, and you could do whatever needed to be done to try to figure out, is this guy lying or not? And Paul's like, go talk to him. Go find out because there were so many. And so this passage right here becomes kind of this list of people that you could go talk to that you could go interview and find out if they really saw what they said they're seeing. It's interesting to have that many, that many eyewitnesses of a thing. Sir Edward Clark, he's this famous old lawyer that knows tons and tons of stuff about the law. And this is what he says about the Jesus situation, right? He says, as a lawyer, 
I have made a prolonged study of the evidences for the events of the first Easter. He studied Easter, right? To me, the evidence is conclusive. Over and over again in the high court, I've secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. Here's a lawyer using really fancy big words. So let me explain what he just said. There's a lot of evidence. <laughs> He's like, these people, the way they, they wrote down or expressed what they saw happen with Jesus rising from the dead. He's like, if I brought that into court, I've won cases on far less. He's like, I've seen cases come into court and be like critiqued so, so thoroughly. And yet this evidence is like a mountain compared to that. And so he says, as I look at the evidence and the eyewitnesses that built up the case of Jesus rising from the dead, he said, as a lawyer, that would pass in court all day long. He's like, there is no way I wouldn't believe that these people are actually telling the truth and believe they're telling the truth. That's a pretty powerful testimony from a guy who does this for a living. Here's another guy who's a professor. His name's Thomas Arnold, and he, um, he's a famous author for writing this um, three-volume history of Rome. Like, it, it's a big deal. Like, he's known for research and known for digging out true things to be able to put it in a history book so you're not writing down garbage, right? So he puts his skill to work, and this is what he says about Jesus. He says, the evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be, and often has been, shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and ten thousands of persons have gone through it, piece by piece, as carefully as every judge summing up on a most important cause. I've myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I've been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by letter and fuller evidence than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. A dude who literally investigates history books and finds lies in them looks through the Bible and looks through the account of Jesus' resurrection and says there is nothing that even compares to being as trustworthy as this. There are some powerful statements out here about how trustworthy this account is that Jesus rose from the dead. A guy named Charles Hodge, he's a theologian moving into the Bible world now. He says um, in this one reference, it is the best authenticated event in ancient history. And he says, why? Because of the massive evidence of eyewitnesses. So the passage we're reading tonight isn't just, oh, cool, like sometimes if you were reading this book, you'd probably just read through that. Like a bunch of people saw Jesus rise from the dead. Yay. You know. This is probably one of the most powerful sections of scripture because what it does is it tells us we can trust every single word. All of these eyewitnesses saw and proclaimed with their life on the line that Jesus really rose from the dead. And so let's, 
start in verse 5 and just kind of walk through what Paul says here real quick. He starts off and he says, in that he appeared, right? Jesus appeared. He didn't just like stay in the grave and then all of a sudden he's like, all right, I'm off, I'm going to heaven. He's gone. He could have done that. He decides, I'm going to let people know I'm alive again. (laughs) I want them to know. It wasn't like someone just kind of like, oh, wait, I stumbled on Jesus. I caught him. You know, I saw him over there. Let's snap a quick pick. Like that wasn't the deal. Jesus intentionally went to people to say, here I am. I'm alive. I'm not dead. I'm out of the grave. I want you to know I'm risen because me being risen means you can rise one day too. And so Jesus intentionally appears and fulfills these prophecies. And then it says, let's just look at at some of the people he literally appears to then. Who are they, right? Mary Magdalene. He shows up intentionally to Mary Magdalene in that garden. She thought he was a gardener, right? And he's like, like, no, it's me. Mary Magdalene, someone who would have known Jesus so personally, so intimately, would have recognized if he was a fake or somebody else, she would not have mistaken Jesus. And there she is like, he must be a gardener. Not expecting him to be risen from the dead until he says, here I am. And then she undoubtedly knows, that's Jesus. I know this guy. I would recognize him. Who else does he show up to? Well, there's two disciples that are walking on the Emmaus Road. And as they're just kind of like bantering and talking, this dude just like starts talking to him and like walking with them. And they're like, wait, where'd this guy come from? And they start just like chattering with him. Like, oh, you hear about Jesus dying? And like, they're having this whole conversation when finally, like, he's like, it's me. <laughs> like, they realize this is actually the risen Jesus Christ walking with us. How about the, the apostles as they were fishing? Some of them were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and they're fishing, right? And they're just having conversations. And all of a sudden, a guy walks up, starts fishing with them and talking to them. There's Jesus again. And their minds are blown like Jesus is alive, standing right here with us. And you know what all of these people do? They go tell everybody. Like, I just literally talked to Jesus. I'm telling you, he's not in the tomb anymore. I'm telling you, he's not dead anymore. He rose from the dead, and I want everyone to know that. And so all of these people are running to tell the world that Jesus is alive. He appears to them intentionally. And he doesn't just appear right to them. It says that he appears to Cephas. It says Peter. Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Peter, who stood there as they were questioning Jesus. Peter, who said nothing, and as people asked him who he was or even like pointed the finger at him, he's like, no, no, like I don't know the guy. I have nothing to do with him. That same Peter, you know, Jesus sends word and says, listen, tell the disciples, and he goes, especially Peter, that I'm coming to meet with them. I'm alive, and I can't wait to see them. This dude who just denied him three times, who stood there watching the trial as he was about to be murdered and did nothing. This dude who said that he was like Jesus' boy, right? The the same dude who cut a dude's ear off because he didn't want him to take Jesus, who was like this tough guy who would do anything for Jesus, and he stood there and denied him three times. That's the same dude Jesus said, please, especially tell Peter. I want to see him. I want to show him it was worth it. I'm alive. They can't kill me. They can't keep me in the grave. 
And then it says, he shows himself to the 12. These men of such high integrity and character, men who would give their very lives for truth, men who would go out and help people and serve people and love people, men who were well-respected because they loved God and they loved people. And they're coming forward giving their word that was trustworthy to say we saw the risen Jesus. He stood in front of us. He ate and drank, which means like he had a physical form. Spirits don't eat or drink, right? He's standing before them in this glorified body where they could still see the scars from his crucifixion. They could still put their hand on his side where he was pierced with a spear. And these men give an eyewitness that says, we saw the risen Jesus Christ. And they wanted the world to know. And it says in verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What does this mean? Well, first of all, it's a massive group of people, right? That's a lot of witnesses. That's a strong argument. But second, they saw it at the same time. It wasn't like, oh, I went home and like had this dream and ate some bad spaghetti and I thought I saw Jesus because I miss him a lot. And like I go tell my friend and they kind of dream up the same thing. Everyone has their own little deal going on where we just make up a story and hallucinate. This was like all 500 are together at the same time, looking through their eyes, seeing the same Jesus in front of them. It's hard to, hard to make a mistake there. You have 500 other people, 499 other people that could be like, no, that didn't happen that way. But they didn't. They all agreed. All 500 agreed on this same story, the same exact historical event, because they all saw Jesus. And this is where Paul says, and listen, most of them are still alive. Some have died, but most are still alive today. And so as he wrote this, for people to read, he says, go ask them. Don't take my word for it. You don't have to believe me. That's fine. Go literally ask these 500 that all at once saw him risen. Paul's telling us that we can trust the fact that Jesus really rose from the dead. Faith requires trust. But it doesn't have to be so blind that you just say, well, I'm just going to believe it and have no idea why. Because God has given us so many reasons why we should trust. And in this passage, Paul is giving us reason after reason after reason that God's given us to say Jesus really did this. And this is unbelievable that we would have over 500 people that could say, we saw him, he's walking around, he's breathing, and he's alive today. God always goes above and beyond our expectations. He didn't have to do any of that, right? Could have just been like, it happened, believe it. It really happened, it's the truth. But instead, our God is so gracious and good, he goes, let me help you. I know you. I know you, Rob Jones. I know how hard it is for you to trust and for you to believe, so I'm gonna help you believe. I'm gonna give you some reasons 
I'm going to point it out. I'm going to make it so clear. There are going to be these massive arrows pointing at the truth. So even you, Rob, can't miss it, right? And he's giving us these huge arrows to say, this is undoubtedly true. Jesus rose from the dead. And so can you. Man. I wonder how Paul felt as he wrote this. Because Paul, in verse 7, he tells us that Jesus even went to his brother James. Now, you got to know something about his Jesus' brother James. He didn't think Jesus was the real deal. As a matter of fact, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Multiple times they were like, Jesus is insane. We're sorry. They would make excuses for him. They were like embarrassed by him. And then all of a sudden there's a change where they see the truth. And all of a sudden, James goes from being like a critic of Jesus to going, I will die for the truth. He becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem where people will be persecuted and murdered and killed for speaking the name Jesus. That's how drastically James changed his mind from making fun of his brother to he is absolutely the king of heaven. He is the real deal. And I will lay my life down and die for that truth. Man, and he gives his testimony to it as well. And then it says that Jesus went to all the apostles. All of them, right? So each one of these men who have been out who've had transformed lives, preaching the gospel. Listen, Jesus is like, here I am. And I'm going to put power on you and you're going to be full of power and you're going to go spread my church among all the nations. And then it says this in verse eight. Don't miss this part. This is so important. It says, last of all. Last of all. You know who he goes to last of all? The guy writing this the guy whose story this is, Paul himself. Paul, who was out murdering Christians. Paul, who was out standing over these pits and having his followers throw these massive stones down on top of people who believed in Jesus and would stone them and persecute them and hurt them and kill them and put them in prison. He would drag them out of their places of worship because they were worshiping the name of Jesus That was Paul, and that same Paul says, last of all, after Jesus had gone and showed himself to all these people, he came late, but he came to me. And as Paul was going down a road, all of a sudden this bright light appears, and he falls to his face onto the ground, and he hears the voice of Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? Imagine if Jesus showed up to you tonight on your way home. And in this loud, booming voice, in a blinding light that puts scales over your eyes and you're blinded afterwards, says, hey, why are you persecuting me? I believe that would change some lives. And it changed Paul's life. And he goes from murdering and persecuting believers in Jesus to becoming one of the greatest evangelists of all time, who planted most of the churches. And so when he says last of all, he's thinking through his life. There might be some guilt mixed in there. There might be some shame mixed in there. But what 
eventually comes out is this unbelievable gratitude that God would look at him and all he's done and still send Jesus to say, I love you. I want to save you. I want to make your life beautiful. After all that you've done, I'm going to transform you because that's how powerful Jesus is. He's strong enough to raise from the dead. He's strong enough to raise you from the dead and to change your life. And Paul gets to be this incredible testimony of that. He says, last of all, listen how he refers to himself, as to one untimely born. That might sound confusing, but this is what the Greek means. It means the abortion, the aborted one. Paul refers to himself as an aborted baby, being born dead. I was born broken. I was born sinful. I was born dead. I had no idea what life was. Yes, I was born, but I was completely dead. I was persecuting the church of my Savior. And that's the Paul that Jesus went to. He didn't have to get perfect and cleaned up and turn into this awesome church planner. He went to a broken Paul. Jesus said, Paul, I love you where you are. I want to take your brokenness and give you new life. And that's exactly what happens in Paul. He has this new birth that all of us can have if we place our trust in Jesus. You see, just like Paul, we're born dead. We're born separated from God. And so we're born just in sin, only able to do what we can do. It's all on you. It's all on your shoulders. I hope you know that. If you don't have Jesus, this life is up to you. You're going to make of it what you can make of it. And that's as far as you will go. Paul says, Jesus can come and he can raise you from the dead. And so where I'm born with this dead spirit, Jesus can make my spirit alive. He can make it so that that I can depend on him and on God for things that will take me way further than I could ever go on my own. He can grant me forgiveness of my sins, a relationship with him, an eternity in heaven at his side, none of that is possible on my own because I'm born dead. I don't even know what life really is about until I meet Jesus. My heart isn't even woken up until I meet Jesus. Y'all, before I knew Jesus, I had no idea. I had no idea what life could be because I wasn't alive. But when you walk with Jesus and you have a relationship with Jesus, your eyes get opened up to things you never could have seen before. All of a sudden, there is joy and peace and patience and kindness and long-suffering and all these amazing things that the Holy Spirit does inside of you that weren't there before. But when God makes you alive with his Holy Spirit, you can now start to look like Jesus. Read, if you want to know what Jesus looks like, read the Bible. Find out how unbelievable this man is, that he would change the entire world. Cultures shifted. Religions were annihilated. Like the whole world turns and says, Jesus has changed the globe for all time. One man. It's because he's the only one who can bring you back to life. And when people's eyes open up to that, it's powerful. It doesn't just change us. It changes the people around us. 
changes the culture around us. Because Jesus is not some weak God. He is the God who commands life and death. That's our Jesus. And so Paul says that he was like this stillborn baby. And in verse 9 it says, For I am the least of the apostles. All these other guys followed him, had these incredible faith stories, like had done amazing things. And Paul's like, I was just the worst sinner on earth. I don't deserve to be an apostle. Jesus should have shown up on that road and just annihilated me right there. I should have been done. He probably thought that's what Jesus had shown up to do. But that's not what Jesus did. Instead, he shows him love and forgiveness, and that's the exact same love and forgiveness he wants to show you tonight. What kind of sins are you hiding in your heart tonight? What kind of things are going on in your head and heart that you would be so freaked out if anybody else in this room knew about it? What kind of shame or guilt are you feeling as you sit here tonight? I bet you're not that different from Paul. I bet Jesus tonight wants to look at you and say, all that shame and guilt, I want to wash it away. Even more, he wants to take it and wear it for you. All your sin, he wants to take it and put it on himself and bring it to a cross and leave it there. That deadness inside of you, that desire to know your purpose, all of those things that just result in emptiness in us, Jesus is like, let me fill that. Let me bring your spirit back to life. Let me open your eyes up to what life really should be. You're missing it all. Let him forgive your sin. Would you go to Jesus tonight and say, I'm yours. I want to be forgiven. I want a relationship with my God. I want eternal life in heaven with you. I am tired of living this garbage life of brokenness. I'm ready for something more. Paul says he found that something more. As he talks about himself being the least of the apostles, he says, like, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Look at verse 10. He says, but here's the beautiful part. By the grace of God, I am what I am. God changed him. Look, it's not about you coming to this place and then being like, all right, sign me up, Rob. Like, I want a better life. So what do I need to do? What do I need to do better? How do I change my behavior? How do I fit in better at church so people accept me, you know? That's not what it's about. You're not trying to impress us. You shouldn't be. It's about you going before Jesus and saying, I can't do this anymore. Will you please do this? It's about you finally reaching a place in your life where you're willing to surrender and just give up and say, Jesus, I need you. And that's where Paul found himself, and he says, Jesus did it. He didn't leave him sitting there on his knees. He picked him up, and he said, I'm going to just pour my grace over you and my forgiveness, and I'm changing your life. And that's exactly what he wants to do for us tonight. He says, his grace toward me was not in vain. When Jesus pours his grace out over you, there's no stopping it. When Jesus starts pursuing you and chasing after you with his love, there's no resisting it. Like, he's coming after you. Paul says it's not in vain. He's going to change you and transform you. And he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
Though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that's with me. Listen what he means here. He's like, because I had such a past, because some of us might be thinking, you don't know my past. You don't know what I'm in right now, Rob. Paul's like, because of my past, I'm able to go serve Jesus with even more passion than these guys. You know why? Because I saw and I can see what he changed me from. He saved me from that. And now I want to follow him that much more because I know what he's done. I know what it took to forgive a guy like me, to show up on that road, to talk to me, to care about me, to call me out of the darkness. I know what it takes. And so it causes me to love him that much more because I wouldn't have done it if it were me. Jesus shows up. So you're like, man, I have a past. That's awesome because now you'll know that much better exactly what it took Jesus to bring you out of that and into a new life. And Paul says it caused me to serve him even more deeply. Then in verse 11, it says this. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. What he's saying is it. He's not boasting about like how hard he worked. He's saying that God was at work in his heart to cause him to do those things. He's like, I couldn't have done it by myself. Jesus shows up and calls me out of it and then keeps working in me. It's not that I like changed my behavior. Look at me, I'm doing so good serving homeless people. Like that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying Jesus not only saved me, but he caused me to grow and put this passion in my heart to love him and serve him and follow him. But all the glory goes back to Jesus because you might be thinking tonight, like how in the world will I follow a dude like Paul who was able to do that? It's because Paul wasn't able to do that. Your mission isn't to follow Paul. Your mission is to fall down at the feet of Jesus and say, I can't do this. Will you do this in me? Will you forgive me? You just give me your grace. I need it tonight. And that's exactly what Paul did. And Jesus gave him that very grace, it says. And because of it, he preached. He wrote this that we're reading tonight. 2,000 years later, you're hearing his words preached tonight to you. It's still being preached. You know why? Simply because he surrendered to Jesus. God's still changing the world through his words. What will he do through you? How many generations, how many millennia will be affected by your faithfulness to Jesus, by what God will do through you if tonight you just surrender? You do nothing more than just surrender tonight. I promise you, you will not regret it. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Just as you're sitting in your seat, the band's gonna come up and lead us in another song. I just ask you, would you would you just talk to God for a second as you're sitting here? Would you just ask the Lord, like, am I still dead inside? Have I experienced true life that only you can give? Do I really believe that one day I will rise again if I trust in Jesus? Like, I am coming back just like Jesus did.
Or am I just playing some Christian religious game tonight? I'm just going through the motions, sitting at youth group with some friends. Or do you want your life to mean more? Do you want to see real transformation? Do you want to see real power in your heart and your life? Do you just ask God, hey, Lord, will you show me honestly what's in my heart tonight?